It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. I think that most of Multipolarity's listeners will have woken on Saturday to shock at events in Israel. Shock morally and shock militarily as well. An unexpected and startlingly successful, but also repulsively bloody attack by Hamas out of the Gaza region into Israel proper was undertaken in the early hours of Saturday morning, the UK time. And it involved a series of infiltrations by air, by parachute, paraglider and hang glider, and also individuals on uh, motorbikes and then trucks and by foot. And then after that, you know, bulldozers knocking down walls around Gaza and a full flood of Hamas fighters pouring into Israel proper. This all took place under the cover of a missile and rocket bombardment, which apparently completely overwhelmed Israel's much vaunted Iron Dome system. And as this attack took place, as it unfurled, there were a series of massacres and atrocities and war crimes that have apparently taken place, pictures of which or descriptions of which I think have shocked almost everybody. Since then, once Israel got over the initial blow, you know, it took them about three, four days to stabilize the situation. And since then, they have been absolutely flattening Gaza as a region, which is shocking in itself to see the damage that's done and some of the the deaths and injuries that have been wrought by that. So I think, you know, it's worthwhile Philip Pilkington really focusing on this issue because not only has it been a, an arresting moment for anybody who follows international relations and, and arresting on several levels, and actually, as we'll get into later in the show, actually very concerning about where all this might lead. It, it will not necessarily stay contained within its current theatre. And in fact, it could start spreading very broadly indeed. Uh, but in addition to that, I think there's a lot to say here about uh, the overall geopolitical situation and the way things are moving without wanting to minimize uh, the horror of what's taken place in both Israel and Gaza at the moment. I mean, Philip, you were looking at just how big this attack was. I mean, I think we've all been shocked, but before we came on air just before, you were reeling through some numbers. People who've been around the block for a while, say the last 15 years or whatever, if you're old enough to remember them, you probably remember a few conflicts between Israel and Gaza. And maybe people don't really remember the type of casualties we were looking at, at least on the Israeli side. So to give some context to that, the last number I saw for Israeli casualties from the Hamas attack on Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, however long it went on for it was about 1,400 to 1,200 to 1,400. Those were the estimates that I saw. So just to give that some context, in 2008-2009, there was the Gaza War. Now, the casualties on the Gaza side were, were quite bad. They were anywhere from about 1,100 to about 1,400, so quite similar to what we saw 
in Israel in the past few days. But on the Israeli side, there were 13 people killed in total. Three of them were civilians. 10 of them were soldiers. And of those 10, four of the soldiers were actually killed in friendly fire incidents. Um, when you go, when you roll on to the 2014 Gaza war, things look a little bit less worse for Israel, but but not in the same territory as what we've seen in the past few days. So in the 2014 Gaza war, 67 soldiers and six civilians were killed on the Israeli side. And one of those civilians was actually a Thai national, apparently. On the Gaza side, it's about 2,300. The Gaza casualties tend to be much higher because of, of air raids and so on inside Gaza. I'm not trying to discount the fact that you know a human life is a human life, but I think I think what the numbers show over the past few days is that Israel really has been hit with something they've never experienced before. I, I, I think these are higher casualty figures than even the 1973 war, at least in terms of day to day. Some people have been saying it's kind of Israel's 9-11. And in a sense, I think that's true in the sense that it's a loss on their soil of their own people that they've never seen before. In another sense, it's not really 9-11 because 9-11, of course, was a very well-executed terror attack. I mean, it still, to this day, provokes conspiracy theories because people couldn't possibly believe that Al-Qaeda actually did this. But I think even if you put the Operation 9-11 as, as quite a sophisticated attack, it still only really required a handful, two handful, three handfuls of men trained to storm a cockpit and steer a plane. But the Hamas attack over these past few days has involved, I think, well over a thousand Hamas fighters, and it's been very, very well coordinated. So although the effect of it is 9-11-esque, and we'll, when we talk about how it could play it in the future and the geopolitical ramifications, it is very 9-11-esque, but it is more of a, it was a battle. It was a real battle. It was a skirmish in a war. And as we move forward, I'd expect even without escalation, just Israel dealing with Hamas in Gaza is going to escalate into a real war, the likes of which Israel have certainly not seen since the 1960s, maybe not even since 1948. Yeah, and I think you know what's really interesting about this is that it came against a backdrop which really suggested that something like this might happen. We on multipolarity talk week after week after week about how in the current geopolitical situation, there are certain areas in the world which are natural, I suppose, or, or intrinsic to their composition, intrinsic to the to to the way the powers fit together in specific regions, uh, are flashpoints, and always, you know, will be for the foreseeable future. And we've been saying since almost the beginning of this podcast, since we first started doing it, that certain regions would be likely to kind of explode, to flare, you know, for, for enmities to flare back up and, and for kind of war and skirmishes and attacks to, to uh, erupt in those regions. And, and, and sure enough, here we are. The, the, the bizarre thing is you had Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor to the uh, president of the United States, a very senior member of that administration, listened to a, a, a speech by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who's perhaps the second most powerful part of that administration, praise Jake Sullivan and, and, and really talk extensively about his role within the administration. And just, what, a week, 10 days before this attack, Jake Sullivan was saying 
that the Middle East has never been quieter. The specific backdrop to this region is as follows. From 2003 until very recently, perhaps two years ago at most, so the better part of two decades, the Middle East was essentially in chaos. It was broken, beginning with the American invasion of Iraq and subsequent occupation and the mistakes that the Americans made during the uh, occupation, which released sectarian forces, which the US could not control, despite putting a, a huge amount of their military might toward controlling that. The emergence of Iran as a major power within the region because of the US occupation of Iraq. Then the emergence of ISIS and the terror and chaos which they wrought. Then the Arab Spring, which brought revolution and social unrest and instability within the government. And ultimately, the civil war in Syria, which then in turn sucked in powers within the region, including Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Iran, three of the or three of the five major powers within the region, if we're including Israel. So the Middle East has essentially been broken. It's been in this case of bloody chaos, essentially. But starting last year, there was a sudden shift where the region suddenly just seemed to heal itself. First of all, you had Saudi Arabia and Iran reaching detente, reaching having a rapprochement between each other in a deal brokered by China, which injected itself into the region as a major player, I think for the very first time, a major diplomatic player. It's been a major trade player for some time, but a major diplomatic player for the first time, uh, brokering an a, a, a epochal deal between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, then uh, the Arab League, which is led really by Egypt and Saudi Arabia, um, invited President uh, Bashar al-Assad, back, uh, the Syrian president, back into the Arab League. They recognized him as the sovereign head of state of Syria. Um, you know, they had been until fairly recently trying to have him deposed through a proxy war and injecting themselves into the Syrian civil war. But they essentially conceded that Assad had won the civil war. And all during this time, uh, the U.S. was uh, preoccupied in Ukraine. Its influence was getting weaker within the region. Um, it lost the main means by which it kept the Middle East uh, in tension, which was uh, playing a ran off with Saudi Arabia. Um, it essentially lost the Syrian civil war. It went all in. Assad must go. You know, he can't stay. They, they, they had been trying to depose him for, for the better part of a decade and had failed. And then. Back comes the US, trying to bring a little bit more influence, get, get, get some influence back within the region by brokering a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which bizarrely involved requesting the Saudis to uh, pump more oil, which I think is a really strange thing. It, it's almost like they're, they're treating this, uh, or, or they're treated, because it's dead in the water now, but they're, they're treated this kind of diplomatic deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, a bit like they do with one of these bills in Congress, you know, where they put forward a bill for, I don't know, healthcare spending, but then tag on something to the bill that involves building a bridge in a marginal, uh, marginal 
constituency in Arkansas or Arkansas or something like that, you know? So they they tagged on this oil thing. They offered the Saudis security guarantees in exchange for the Saudis rationalizing uh, relations with Israel, i.e. recognizing Israel as a sovereign state, which very few of the Middle Eastern countries do. But now that's all failed. Hamas attacked and Israel's uh, response has just meant essentially that uh, the Saudis have said, no, it's dead in the water. No, no Muslim state at all, let alone a Muslim state in the Middle East, could possibly reach any deal with Israel under current circumstances, so that deal's dead. That's essentially the local geopolitical background. I think what happened in Israel and what will probably happen in the coming weeks means two things. First of all, it means that it's going to be very difficult moving forward to recognize or to make the claim that we're still living in the same world we're living in in 2021 or 2018. I think that Israel's been a real wake-up call, probably because it's another front opening up while there's still a front opened up in Europe. It's a wake-up call that there might not really be anyone in charge here, by which I mean the US. Related to that, I think the Israel situation has pretty much put a nail in the coffin of the Biden administration. We don't want to get too political on the show, but it seems very likely that the Biden administration will go down as one of the most disastrous ones in US history. So I just think that's worth noting because I definitely get that feeling. And having videos like that of Jake Sullivan saying, you know, everything's rosy a few days before a disaster, I mean, that's something that the history books will probably record. In terms of them actually thinking that the area was stable, well, it's kind of as you said, if you... If you're paying any attention to the uh, shifts that were taking place in the region, the the involvement of China and so on, I'm not saying that you would have immediately guessed that Hamas would have attacked Israel. I think we're all uh, surprised with the events that unfolded. But when China were coming in and brokering embassies being reopened between Saudi Arabia and Iran, that should have been writing on the wall for most people, saying something is fundamentally changing here. And when something changes, when a new power comes in or when a new shift takes place in a region as unstable as the Middle East, it's not that it's not that surprising that something, you know, an explosion should happen in a sense. Again, not saying that that we could have predicted what happened on Saturday, but if I were in DC or in Tel Aviv or anywhere else, I would have said, wow, these shifts are happening right now that we can see. We're reading about them in the newspaper. Maybe we should be very vigilant moving forward. On the deal itself, the, the, the floated deal, so there was obviously the actual deal where the Chinese brokered the reopening of the Iranian embassies in Saudi Arabia, which was widely seen, I think, at the time as, as a rapprochement after, I think, seven years of enmity between the two countries. The floated deal with Saudi Arabia and Israel was being reported, as you said, right up until zero hour of this thing on Saturday. But I never, I mean, I think we might have even talked about it on the podcast before. I just didn't think it would ever credibly go through. Obviously, the the Western press said, oh, this is really promising and everything like that, because they wanted to try and get it over the line. Of course, like if your sources are diplomats involved in the deal or whatever, they're going to talk up the deal, like obviously talk up their book, as they say in finance. But the deal always looked pretty shaky to me, because uh, according to the reports, Saudi Arabia had as a condition that some change would happen with respect to the status of the Palestinians. And look, I don't, I'm not an expert on the region, but I know enough to know that the current political situation in Israel, due to the fact that it's, it's really sw- swung to the right in Israel, 
There's Netanyahu's party, I think the Likud, they're called. And then there are even more right-wing parties uh, to the right of them that getting any deal on Palestine through the Israeli parliament just seemed unlikely to me. And, and you know, that's what we saw. So the, the, I, I think it's worth highlighting those two things. First, that the deal that was being floated, even to a fairly casual reader like me, seemed unlikely to go through. And the changes that had taken place in the region should have pricked people's ears up. Now, all of this has come to a head yesterday, as of the time that we're recording, in that the Iranian president called the Saudi crown prince for the first time in recent history. So there is an interesting point. That's really interesting timing. He calls him for the first time in recent history, at least, maybe in history, I don't know. And they discussed, according to Reuters, quote, the need to end war crimes against Palestine, unquote. They're choosing a side. Iran and Saudi Arabia are choosing a side in this conflict. Now, I don't think that was completely unpredictable from the previous moves on the chessboard. While everyone else was watching, this potential deal that never went through, always seemed to me slightly unlikely, the Iranians and the Saudis were talking to each other. We were highlighting it on the show. We highlighted it a number of times. And now there you go. After something kicks off in Israel, the Saudis and the Iranians are talking to each other about how to solve the situation on behalf of the past. Yeah, I think you make several important points there. The, the first and most important one, really, is apparently the failure of both Western intelligence and Western IR officials, international relations officials, whether they're working in intelligence or whether they're working in the US State Department or the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office or wherever. There seems to be a real failure here. And as you very rightly say, things in the Middle East are changing and changing quite rapidly. The United States and its influence has grown weaker in that region. Whatever you think about the US overall, I think it's undoubted that the US has grown weaker in that region over the last two years. And in addition to that, China's getting stronger. And in addition to that, Assad is back in the fold. The Saudis and the Iranians are getting friendlier again. I'm, you know, I'm not saying they're best buddies. I'm not saying they're allies, but at least they're not at each other's throat anymore. And that's a big change. Now, I'm not a great fan of chess analogies for grand strategy and international relations. However, in this case, one thing I would say is when you're playing chess, when your opponent makes a move, one of the things that you need to do in chess is think, what has changed in this position? Like you, you might have had an attack in your mind. You might have had a, 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 a kind of a series of weaknesses that you wanted to plug in your mind. Uh, you might have had a tactical combination in your mind. But before you undertake that, you need to reassess the chessboard and 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 have a look what that position piece does. Does that piece now threaten some of your pieces? Does it now uh, open up lines of sight for other? pieces on his side of the table like what has changed within this position and it seems to me that you know western officials who are supposed to be monitoring the situation decided that no nothing's changed at all it's all going very well with our brilliant deal between the saudis and the israelis never mind that to get this deal through you're asking the uh, saudis to bend or break, and the Israelis potentially to bend or break, on a 
issue that's been running for half a century and is one of the most contentious ethnic, religious, and diplomatic conflict in the entire world. <laughs> and in addition to that, you're asking the Saudis to change their economy and change their economic plans for your benefit. And, you know, it seems we were blinded by, you know, the possibility of this. It it really is very strange. I, I would also say, though, you mentioned that Israel has shifted right to a certain degree as a country. I don't know enough about, I'm not expert enough on Israeli domestic politics to really go into this in detail. But I think it's fair to say that there is... In Israel, a bit like in much of the West, but it seems even more so in Israel, there's really a, a conflict between the old establishment forces, the, the kind of the liberal, perhaps left of centre, perhaps right of centre, but anyway, the kind of the traditional centrist, liberal, sec secularists in Israel, and popularists. And it, you know, we see that in the United States, we've seen it in Britain. We're increasingly seeing it in Europe. This is a conflict that's happening across the Western world. And I think we can say that Israel is part of the Western world. But in Israel, it's taken on a very specific and, and, and singular nature, this conflict. And it's a conflict between you know, people who would really rather Israel became much more Jewish. I don't mean Jewish ethnically. I mean Jewish as in Judaism, the religion. People who want to take control in the name of the new majority, you know, the new Israelis are much more orthodox in terms of their Judaism, and they are much more conservative as well. They're much more fundamentalist in terms of the way that they view their religion. And there's a genuine conflict there. There's been riots and uh, conflicts on the street between the government led by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the forces of the traditional establishment in Israel. There have been ongoing running protests. Israel has faced a great deal of pressure. We've talked about this before on the podcast from the Biden administration. In the last six months, essentially, the relationship between Netanyahu and the Biden administration is cool, cool, frosty, maybe, like, you know, Arctic, perhaps. So, you know, as well as, you know, the background, you know, in the Middle East as a whole, I think we've also got to look at what's been happening in Israel and the effect of that and, and perhaps some of the weakness. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'd also note that the, um, the, the situation around Israel is becoming highly politicized in the US because, as you said, the Biden administration hasn't had great relations with Israel. And frankly, it soured its relations with Saudi Arabia as well, which partly explains why the deal never got done. And if the deal had got done, we assume something like this maybe wouldn't have happened. So that's been completely politicized domestically as well. And the Democrats are really on the back foot. They also have a pretty, pretty strong left wing contingent in the Democratic Party that they've, they've really been nurturing since the Obama days. And I think they're fine with that when it's talking about the latest cool protest movement. But now they're all going anti-Israel. So <laughs> I think the Democrat Party is going to have a lot of issues with this. I think it'll have, it'll have serious ramifications for politics within that party. And I think it'll it'll really put some wind in the sails of the Republicans. I think it's probably worth talking now about what this war is going to sort of look like, maybe, and also where it might go in the future. Yeah, I mean, urban warfare is well known to be the most difficult, most challenging, and most bloody form of warfare, mode of warfare, if you like. 
And the reason for that is that it, you know, unlike uh, other battles on land, urban warfare takes place in three dimensions. It has, you know, depth as well, or height as well as length and width. And in addition to that, there's cover everywhere, cover literally everywhere. There's pre made bunkers and strong points everywhere. You know, you've got to fight essentially street by street, door by door, stairwell by stairwell, room by room over and over again in a city of 2 million people. And if you look at pictures like, you know, of Gaza, it's, you know, it's not like a British city of 2 million people, which would be, you know, relatively spread out. It's not even like the kind of post-Soviet cities that we saw in Mariupol and Bakhmut, where there are some kind of concrete high-rise flats. This looks more like, you know, 1980s Hong Kong, that kind of level of density. I mean, maybe it doesn't have the high rise like Hong Kong did, but you know, if you can just pack over two million people into like a pretty small area with kind of ten or fifteen story buildings, that's what you've got. And as far as I understand, underneath the Gaza Strip is is essentially a, a, a warren of tunnels which conceal, um, you know, supply routes, strong points. Where did they find? 5,000 missiles, which apparently were fired on Saturday in that opening salvo. I'm guessing that they're all stored, hidden away from prying eyes in these kind of these tunnels. It, it, it sounds very much like, you know, a, a more complex and urban version of what the Viet Cong had. So you've got that to concern yourself with if you're the Israeli Defense Force as well. And just, you know, by means of comparison, I think I'm right in saying that it took the US Marine Corps the best part of eight weeks to clear Fallujah, the best part of two months, or you know, perhaps even longer than that. And Fallujah was less densely populated, smaller in terms of population. And I think the defenders only numbered about 2,000, something like that. <laughs> 2,000. And we're talking about a much more densely populated area with prearranged defense. I mean, you have to think that when they went ahead and did this, they understood what the Israelis were going to do. So they were prepared for it. And if they've pre-prepared defenses and they have this tunnel system, which everybody says that they have, it, I mean, if the Israelis succeeded in running through Gaza and essentially eliminating Hamas as a threat, it might well be the most impressive feat of military craft of the 21st century so far and perhaps since the war. I mean, that's the kind of the scale of the task, I would say even with their advantages in artillery, in, in other ground fires, and in intelligence, reconnaissance, and air power, even with all of that, it would still be an awesomely impressive feat for them to do it. So I guess that backs your position up that I don't know how they're going to go about doing this. I really do not, Philip, but it seems they're dead set on doing it, which I understand. I think we feel that the potential for escalation here is quite high. But in terms of what happens in the, in the immediate future, in the very foreseeable future, obviously, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has effectively said that they're going to eliminate Hamas. And I think, I think whether that's a good idea or not, which we'll probably talk about in a moment, for the Israelis to do, I think it's pretty much baked in now. I think to save face, the government has to do this to make sure that Israelis aren't terrified. They have to do this because not just the, the horrifying nature of the attack, not just the emotional response. But as you said, Hamas is now no longer just some kind of scrubby 
terrorist organization that might bomb, plant a bomb or something. It's now a credible military threat. Um, and having an, an enemy credible military threat within your borders, in a sense, is pretty bad news. So um, when you look into it, even briefly, even non-expertly, the situation for the Israeli army looks pretty grim. So they estimate, Israel estimates, that Hamas has about 30,000 fighters. Whether they're right about that, who knows, because their intelligence has been bad. But let's give it to them, 30,000 fighters. Just to give some context on that, in the 2014 Gaza war that we, I mentioned before, that was the deadliest in the Gaza Strip in recent memory. Israel killed just over 640 Hamas fighters over the period of about six weeks. So eliminating Hamas or, you know, borderline eliminating Hamas would require 47 times the number of, of fighters killed as they did in 2014. That's a big ask. And remember, that's not just, it doesn't just scale naturally. Like if they go in and bomb the place, you know, to bits in 2014 and they kill 640, you know, it's 640 out of 30,000. So, you know, there's the probability of hit and so on. To, to wipe them all out, presumably you have to go door to door because they probably have bunkers and tunnels and so on. Okay, a couple more things that kind of frame the discussion, I think. The Gaza Strip is 360 square kilometers. So it's very, very large. I think, I, I thought a good analogy to draw with the Gaza Strip would be Bakhmut, the big battle that took place in eastern Ukraine only ended a few months ago. That was the bloodiest battle, if people remember, in the Ukraine war so far. It was street to street fighting. It was artillery bombarding and crushing buildings. And by the end of a Bakhmut looked like something that you saw after World War II. If people have a vague sense of how gr grisly Bakhmut was and how long it took. Bakhmut is just over 41 square kilometers. So the Gaza Strip is nine times larger than Bakhmut. And the last thing to take into account is the civilian population. Because prior to the, the Russians and the Ukrainians fighting it out in Bakhmut, the place was, was effectively evacuated. The thing is that, first of all, there were only 73,000 people living there. It was very, it was very spread out. There were a lot of there were, there were few people per square kilometer, so there's only seventy three thousand people, and there was plenty of places for them to go. The pro Russian ones could go with the Russian army, pro Ukrainian ones could go with the Ukrainian army, and there was plenty of space behind enemy behind the lines, as it were, to settle them in. Also, they were they'd be ethnically homogenous with the group that they went with, so they'd just be like, you know, the Russians would say, "Oh, you're we recognize you as Russians," and the Ukrainians would say the same. The Gaza Strip has a population of two million. Enormous. So it's 27 times the number of people that were in Bakhmut. And unless Israel want to turn this into a mass slaughter that no one in the world, no matter how pro-Israeli countries are, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians, I don't think is going to work. They need to figure out how to settle 27 times the number of people that had to be evacuated from Bakhmut. And it's not even clear where you settle them. You can get them over to Egypt. But the Egyptians, apparently, I saw today, are saying we don't really want two million uh, Palestinians settling in in the in the I guess the west of our country or the east of our country, which kind of makes sense. And then, or what else would you do? Would you bring them into the other Palestinian territories? I don't know. So even this contained, what people are reading about as a contained war in the newspapers at the moment, 
I don't even know how you can manage this. If, if they really are serious about eliminating Hamas, I don't know how they're going to do it. It seems like an enormous operation. And that's before we even get into the urban warfare and so on. It's just, it's mind boggling. So it'll be very interesting to see where it goes, even in the short term. Why is all this happening? So we've already gone over the attack, the attack by Hamas. And we've, you said how skillful it was, how impressed, I guess, the world has been. Obviously, the the standout from it, apart from being a pretty serious operation, is that it was it was a terror attack. I mean, it, it wasn't a terror attack insofar as blowing up a car bomb in a supermarket by like a terrorist who then runs away. It was a military assault, but it was a military assault that had what looked like terror tactics, terrifying the civilian population, taking hostages, indiscriminately murdering people probably worse than that if anyone's seen the video if we can say that the hamas leadership is obviously competent and intelligent enough to put this operation together which you know takes more than two brain cells let's be honest then they probably knew what the response was going to be they probably knew that by doing something this horrific and this large scale they knew that they weren't going to win against the idf i i don't for a minute believe that anyone in the leadership thought We'll send over a thousand or a thousand five hundred fighters, no matter how well trained, and we're gonna we're gonna take Tel Aviv and take over the parliament. I, I don't think anyone thinks that. My guess would be even the fighters that were sent across were probably thinking that they were doing a suicide run, frankly. I would be very surprised if many of them thought that they were gonna go home afterwards. So it seems logical that the that the attack is meant to be a provocation, and it's meant to be a provocation to draw the Israelis into Gaza. Now, you've just gone, I've gone over the kind of almost statistical overview of that, and you've gone over what the operational overview of that is. And I think both of us arrive at the same conclusion. A, very difficult, sure. But more importantly, B, you're probably going to get bogged down for a while. It's going to be really difficult trying to sort out not, you know, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians and so on. And so, of course, the chatter right now, which, you know, is no secret, is that Hezbollah might open up a front in northern Israel. And that seems perfectly plausible to me. It, it looks like the way this could go is that they pull, Hamas pull the Israeli Defense Forces into Gaza, they pin them down there, and we see you know, an increasing number of basically atrocities come out, we see lots of civilians dying and so on. Public opinion shifts away from the Israelis, because right now it's very much so with the Israelis, but after a couple of weeks, I think the account, Twitter account Martyr Made point this out, after a couple of weeks or even a couple of days of the usual intervention in Gaza, the headlines tend to start turning against Israel as too many civilian bodies stack up. That will be doubly true this time if they're actually trying to eliminate Hamas. So you wait until you get to that point, armies tied down, public opinions changing, and then Hezbollah attack from the north. It also justifies their attack because they say we're we're attacking on behalf of our brothers in arms in Hamas, right? So all of that kind of fits. The Hezbollah, I mean, maybe we can talk about the capacities of Hezbollah. By my understanding, it's quite it's not a match for the IDF per se, but it's quite a, a substantial force. The other issue is whether this is part of something a lot bigger. Whether the machinations that we're seeing right now with Saudi Arabia and Iran and so on that this is starting in Gaza, it may move to northern Israel, and then it could spread from there. I think at the time of recording, we've heard about strikes on Syrian airfields. Now, it's not like those haven't happened before. They've been happening throughout the Syrian civil war. But it seems to me that the real 
scary scenario here is this escalates into an all-out war in the Middle East. I think that is a scary scenario, and one of the reasons that it is scary is because it's entirely plausible that that could happen. Let's just take some of these things that, you know, some of the, the, the points that you raised one by one. The first thing to talk about is Hezbollah, because for all everybody was impressed by Hamas, I think if Hezbollah had pulled off something like this, nobody would have been surprised. Hezbollah is known to be disciplined, highly motivated, and really very competent fighting unit. The last time that the Israelis fought Hezbollah in 2000, which was in 2006, I believe, Hezbollah actually gave the IDF quite the bloody nose. I believe that Hezbollah have learned from past experiences with the IDF, and especially with the Israeli Air Force, the IAF, and you know, Hezbollah understand that the Israeli Air Force really is the trump card for, for Israeli uh, land forces. So Hezbollah now fight by getting really up close with the Israelis, and that prevents uh, ground attack runs. Uh, and in general, they're just extremely useful when it comes to small to small unit tactics, and you know they're all hardened. And and Essex, they've had extensive experience fighting in the Syri- Syrian civil war, so they're all probably battle hardened at this stage. In fact, looking at what's happening here, I think that the Israelis look a, they're very keen. Let me put it this way: to keep Hezbollah out of this. And the reason I say that is because. Right at the beginning, they said, like, look, if Hezbollah get involved in this, and we all know that Hezbollah is funded by Syria and Iran as well, if Hezbollah get involved with this, we'll obliterate Damascus with our air force. Syria's capital is Damascus. We'll, that's a kind of threat. It, it, it's like, hey, Assad, keep your Hezbollah reined in a little bit. In addition to that, the US has come out and said something very similar, that they would use their air assets, whether through the U.S. Air Force or through the uh, air wings of U.S. aircraft carriers, to take on Hezbollah and to take on Syria, to bomb and attack Syria if Hezbollah got involved. The other part, of course, is that Hezbollah are in government now in the Lebanon, and they have Christian coalition partners in, in the Lebanon. And I really think they're trying to make an effort not to bring down more misery upon the Lebanon. And I think that they'd be keen to stay out of this from a political, a domestic political perspective as well. However, as you say, as Israel moves into Gaza, it's almost certainly not going to be a quick thing. And as they move in and start rolling through the city, we've all already seen really tragic and upsetting pictures from Gaza, the death, the mutilation, the destruction. That's only going to get worse. There's going to be all kinds of reports of atrocities and war crimes. And if that grinds on, it's going to be really difficult for them to cool their heels, essentially, in other Muslim countries, other Muslim units, whether that be Hezbollah or elsewhere. So as much as there's pressure on Hezbollah, both domestic, politically, and from Israel, and from the US, to stay out of it, can they? I'm I'm, I'm really not altogether certain they can. And if they don't, and if Israel and the US follow through on their threats to attack Syria, then what happens? I mean that. I mean that's literally not specula- uh, speculation, but it's not kind of guesswork. This is what the main actors have told us will happen in certain scenarios. So then you've got Syria involved. You've got you've got Hezbollah in the north. You've got Hamas in the south. You've got the U.S. and Israel. Uh, it's really quite concerning indeed. 
Yeah, and it brings me back to the comment that we mentioned earlier about the phone call between the um, Iranian president and the Saudi crown prince. They are clearly getting on the side of Palestine. Now, maybe they've miscalculated, but something tells me Iran knows more about what's going on than possibly anybody else. And they seem to be convinced that by the end of all this, there will be some process of negotiation to push for some sort of a deal, which presumably will will involve, I don't know, potentially the, the recognition of a Palestinian state or something like that. It really feels that way from a diplomatic point of view. The Americans and, and the Israelis have made these noises and, and made these threats, and I think there's every chance that they could make good on them. But what exactly would they get themselves involved in? We are fresh from a huge victory. 